Hi there, and welcome to the Life Point Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Adam. Thank you so much for joining in today. It is an honor for us to have uh, this opportunity to come and invest in your ministry as you serve God's mission. The vision of our church is to grow a church where people love to experience God's presence, learn God's teaching, share in God's family, and serve God's mission. And as I already said, What we want to do is we want to strengthen your hands and your ministry as you serve the Lord through reaching people. And that's what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about discipleship, becoming a discipleship teacher, questions that you have submitted that you would like Pastor and Pastor Robert to be able to answer. And so that's why I'm so glad to have both of them live in the studio with us here today, which if you listen to my other podcast, you know the studio is just my basement. So it's, it's so good to have Pastor Shaw and Pastor Robert with us today. Hey guys, thank you so very much for taking time to join us. Thanks for having us here, and we welcome all of you that are listening to this podcast. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today, and uh, we know everyone's going to learn some great things. Absolutely. You know what? Let's just jump right into it. And um, Pastor Shaw, I'm going to toss this question to you first. And it is a question that we got from one of our discipleship teachers, and here is what they said. They said, a question from students in the past is how do I know that this is the right path among so many other teachings? And so what they're looking for is not for their own personal faith to be solidified and strengthened. They're already all in. They're, they're here teaching. But, you know, this is a, a question that comes up, especially when you're teaching those that may come from a more postmodern you know, discover your own truth kind of background. And when they come in contact with absolute, or sorry, they come in contact with apostolic doctrine, we make some very strong absolute claims about God and about salvation. And sometimes, you know, the question comes up, oh my goodness, all of these other churches, they don't baptize in Jesus' name, or they believe in a triune Godhead, and and I'm having interaction with this online preacher or this online teacher, and and they say some really great things. You mean to tell me that they're wrong? How do I know that we're right and what we believe is is really the truth amongst all of the sea of other Christian options out there? How would you instruct this teacher to answer a question like that? Well, I think the answer to that question is something that every person has to discover. So we don't expect anyone to just take our word for it. Um, we're teaching from the Bible. We're teaching from the word of God. And so we will always direct people back to the scriptures, not just to the authority of the pastor or uh, the position that we're right. And our take on the scriptures, our way of interpreting the scripture is to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so if I I were teaching someone, I would say, well, let's let the Bible tell us what we're supposed to believe. Let's allow the scriptures to teach us. And and, uh, you cannot use the Bible in such a way that causes you to deny another part of the Bible. And, and so um, if what I'm teaching or, or what anyone is teaching 
causes you to reject some other part of the Bible, you know that's not a correct uh, interpretation of the Scripture. The Bible is uh, several books, but it is one story, and it is the inspired Word of God, and God is not contradicting himself. And I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. That'd be awesome. Um, there, there is a, a scripture that's very, very commonly used in the evangelical world, Ephesians 4. I'm, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. And it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And... Based on that scripture, many in the many uh, in the evangelical world will say you don't need to be baptized. You don't you don't need to you don't need to do anything based on this scripture. Based on their interpretation of the scripture, they'll say if you do anything to bring about your own salvation, then that is a work. And this scripture says not of works lest any man should boast. Well, here's the problem with taking that position and that interpretation of the Scripture where it says, not of works, lest any man should boast. It, the Scripture says that you're saved by grace through faith. Well, first of all, believing in itself is an act of the mind. Absolutely. I was hoping you'd bring that up because that's the inherent contradiction in the criticism of us saying baptism in Jesus' name is essential for salvation, and they go, no, 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 no. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Baptism is a work. You just have to believe it. And I'm like, isn't belief an action of the mind? Isn't it the turning of the mind from believing in yourself or whatever God or religion you used to believe in and saying, no, Jesus is it. He's the only one. Isn't that in and of itself? An act of faith? I, 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 It is, and that's the very point. Yeah. You know, there's a saying out there, uh, and I may be getting this wrong, but uh, grace alone and faith alone, or by grace alone and by faith alone. Well, here's the problem. Not only, do, not only is believing an act of the mind, but if you take the position that you do absolutely nothing but accept the salvation of Jesus Christ, and you you can do nothing to contribute to um, the receiving of that salvation by an action. You have to deny the scripture. Yeah, you have to deny the scripture. You have to deny words that Jesus said in Luke chapter thirteen, verse three, and in verse five, where he says, "I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish." So. Jesus is saying, you have to do something. You have to yeah. repent. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, it says, But God be thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In that scripture, Paul is saying that they obeyed from the heart, and through their obedience from the heart, they were set free from sin. Last I checked, obedience implies some action. Yeah. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with mighty with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obeying the gospel. Whatever that is, we're not here to to uh, to to flesh that out in this conversation. We're simply giving giving you an example of you know people uh, people out in the evangelical world they take a position on scripture and on doctrine and you have to know the scripture in order to understand whether you're on the right path or not and uh, in this Bible study and in this in this discipleship course that we're teaching we're encouraging people to allow the Bible, to speak for itself, to let the Bible define what faith is, what grace is, what the gospel is, what we must do to be saved. And if we do that, we'll come to the same conclusion as the apostles when they preached in order for you to receive the grace of God and to apply what Jesus um, purchased for us in his death, his burial, in his resurrection is you will repent of your sins. You'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit exactly like they did in the book of Acts. And if we do that, if we teach from that point of view, you will always be on the right path. The Word of God will will teach you, not a church, not a preacher, not some... 300 uh, some dogma from 300 AD or tradition or or culture or whatever you'll be taught by the word of God and and so I know I'm on the right path because the word of God says to do those things that we do and and we come to the conclusions that we come to because of what the word of God says so that's how I would answer that question maybe a little briefer than my explanation but um, that's how I would answer it. I think, and I think for teachers that are listening, you know, this is a like a $5 Scrabble word here, but it's important that we understand how the apostolic hermeneutic or approach to Scripture is fundamentally different from a lot of even the broader evangelical world that will say things like, you know, sola scriptura, or, you know, by Scripture alone, by faith alone, um, and... We go, yeah, 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 that's cool, but are you reading Scripture back through the lens of hundreds of years of creeds and dogmas created by people that never knew Jesus? If you really, really want to understand what the Word of God says, let's let's not read the Scripture back through the lens of, of church history. Let's read Scripture and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's that's the restorationist impulse of an apostolic person, is we want to go, let's go back to the book of Acts. Yes, this church says this, and that church says this, and it can create confusion, and we can wonder who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out. Let's suspend that judgment for a moment, 
And as students, let's just go to the Bible and let's not worry about what Athanasius said or what Calvin said or what Origen said or what this big church said or what this celebrity pastor says. Let's go and see what Peter said, Paul said, James said, Jesus said, because that's where the real answer lies. And I, I think it's, it's okay if people are unsure about what they believe and they're unsure about the validity of what you're trying to teach them, that you not be threatened by that, and you just keep teaching the Word of God and have a trust and a faith that as you go from lesson to lesson and lesson, God will reveal Himself, and God will reveal the plan of salvation through His Word to your students. Let's go to the next question. This, um, um, this is a doctrinal question that deals pastor with one of the lessons that you wrote on um on the identity and the incarnation of Jesus and uh this is a I'll just read the question can you explain the ascension of 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 Jesus or what happened at the ascension of Jesus and what do you mean by the gap between Jesus's humanity and his divinity closed at his resurrection, and and I think in the lesson you talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and all that, could you kind of expound in greater detail what you mean by that? And I, because I think that'll help teachers better, more clearly articulate the incarnation. Let me let me begin by explaining where this came from, and and uh, because uh, I I I knew from the scriptures that Jesus Christ identifies himself as um, the Father. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And uh, Isaiah says, you know, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Son would be called the Everlasting Father. And, and, and many, many, many other scriptures that identify Jesus as God manifest in the flesh. But where I was struggling in my understanding is I knew that Jesus was both God, the divinity, the Father, and he was the Son, humanity. Um, but I was trying to follow the timeline in the humanity, and I kept asking myself the question, what happened to the man? What happened to the man that was praying in the garden? What happened to that human mind, that human will, where he said, not my will, but thine be done? And I was trying to wrap my head around that and try to understand that. And, of course, I heard people use terms like God was robed in flesh, but I felt that was lacking, that terminology, because it implies that he was... He, he wasn't all he wasn't completely authentically a, a human being but he was simply wearing a costume and so I began to think about this and and try to understand it and uh, it led me to a deeper appreciation of the terminology that um, is often used explaining um, Jesus Christ and that is, the incarnation, and the word incarnation means embodiment or in flesh. Um, like, for instance, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 
says God was manifest in the flesh. And, uh, and Jesus said, um, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He was the embodiment of God the Father. Uh, Jesus even said, before Abraham was, I am. So he's clearly identifying himself as the one speaking to Moses at the burning bush, the I am. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him, which is the head of all principalities and powers. And so clearly Jesus is the eternal God, but embodied in a man. But how do you explain that? How, how do you... How do you follow the, 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 the timeline where you see the humanity? Where's the humanity now? Is Jesus up in heaven still talking to the Father like he was when he was on the earth? And my, uh, my understanding of the scripture is that's not the way it is now. That when God became flesh, when God was manifest in the flesh, when, when God was incarnate uh, in the man Jesus Christ. He literally became a human being in every sense of the word. The person of God, the character of God, literally became a human being, but on a human level. So God took on a human mind. God took on a human uh, experience. If you go all the way back to Bethlehem, God as a human being, now he never ceases to be God as God, and Jesus identifies that expression as the Father. But if we go to Bethlehem, we see Jesus as a baby. Well, he's not he's not born in the manger, coming out of the womb talking. Yeah. He's a baby. He has to learn like every other baby learns. He, he has to be carried around. He, he soils his diaper. He, 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 as he grows up, they teach him how to speak. They send him to school, and I'm not exactly sure how they did that, but they send him to school to learn how to read and write. This is the word of God. But he is sent to school to learn how to read and write. Well, God, on that level, you must distinguish him from God on God level. You must distinguish the person, the character, the individual that God as a person. You have to distinguish him from his existence as the almighty, eternal God. And so... Um, Jesus Christ goes through the process. He's, he's distinguished. He has to pray. He has to, he has to access the Spirit in the same way that you and I would. We pray. We interact with God. But, but this is not one person praying to another person. This is the person of God on a human level. And you must distinguish him from um, what he is as Almighty God. That, they are existing on two different levels at the same time. But this is not a permanent arrangement. This is not a permanent manifestation. It didn't exist other than in the thought and purpose of God, um, in the mind of God. It didn't exist before 
Bethlehem. And as we get to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we can see that this differentiation between what he is as a human being and what he is as, as God, we can see that difference, the thing that I call the gap, the difference between what he is as a man and what he is as God. We can see that gap begin to close. Um, for instance, um, Jesus says in John fourteen twenty eight, he says, you have heard how I said to you, I go away and, uh, and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, that's a problem for people who are teaching that God is three co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing persons because we just had one person clearly identify another person in the Godhead, the Father, yeah. as being greater. The other problem we have is, if we're thinking in Trinitarian terms, if you read more out of that same chapter of John, John 14, um, Jesus says things like, I can't do anything on my own authority, only what the Father allows me to do, like John 14 and 10. Only what the Father allows me to do. He says, the Father that is in me, He's doing the works. That wasn't me calming the wind and the wave. The Father that is in me allowed me or empowered me to calm the wind and the waves. It's not me that, as a man who multiplied the fish and the bread. It's the Father that is in me. He allowed me to, to multiply the fish and the bread. Jesus is identifying the gap. But in verse 28, he says, I am going to the Father. You should rejoice because I say I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Well, in the same chapter, he said the Father was in him. Well, if the Father is in him, where is he going to go to get to the Father? The Father is in him. Clearly, he is not talking about, I'm over here in the earth, the Father's over there in heaven, I'm going to go from where I am to where the Father is, and everything is going to be great. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the gap is closing. You ought to be happy for me. This is my graduation day. I am going to the Father. The gap between what I am as man and what I am as God is closing. And um, that's what I believe he's teaching. And that's what the Bible is referring to, for instance, in First. Peter chapter 3, verse 22, um, speaking of Jesus, it says that, that he has gone into the heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. He has he ha, he's gone from being, I can't do anything on my own, to being able to do everything. All the powers and authorities are now subject to him. Here's often how I explain it. God, is, God has created this incredible process where he's the father, he owns everything, he has all power, he has all authority, and he has a son, which is really himself in a human form. 
and the sun is elevated to the position of Almighty God, which is the position he always had as Almighty God, and he inherits as the Son his own throne. Why would he do that? Because he needed to be able to bring redemption to mankind, and the only way that God could bring redemption to mankind is for, for God to become one of us, Emmanuel, and, and to pay the price for our sins on the cross, and then ascend back up uh, into glory, receive a name that is above every name, <laughs> and, and inherit all of the authority and power that he had as the Father. So that now, there is no gap between Jesus Christ and God the Father. We simply worship God the Father in the name, in the person, in the the identity of Jesus Christ. We call our Father Jesus because there is no differentiation. There was while he was on the earth. We can see there was two somethings, but not two persons in the Godhead. We see there was God on the level of God, and we see the person of God on the level of a man. The man calls the the person of God on the God level his father. This gap only lasted for the period of time that redemption was taking place. And I believe today the gap is closed. If we look in the book of Revelation, we see what John saw. John has this vision. He's, he's seeing Jesus come to him. And, and Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the Almighty. He goes on and says, after John sees him and falls down at his feet, is dead, doesn't fully know exactly <laughs> what he's seeing. That one that you know has eyes like fire lays his right hand on him and says, fear not, John. I'm he which, uh, I, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head, but I'm he which liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And so he's clearly identifying himself as Jesus, but he's not appearing as this lowly man that's got to go to school and learn how to read and write. Yeah, he looks nothing like the broken body that was hanging on the cross. His eyes literally look like they're on fire. He is He is. God with a glorified body. Now, he's still he's still God, the omnipresent spirit, God, the all-knowing. But now he has added this evidence of redemption to his, um, to his redemption so that um, he, he is just in, in forgiving us and cleansing us and saving us. And... Um, uh, and, and so that gap that we see when we read Jesus uh, in his humanity on the earth is simply the gap between God becoming a human being. He, the Bible tells us who he is. He's Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. That's in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 23, I believe it is. And, 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 and so God becomes, John says he was in the world, And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God, 
even to them that believe on his name. Why is the name important? Because the name is the identity. It's the story of redemption. God become our salvation. And that's who Jesus Christ is on the earth in flesh. He is God become one of us to be our Savior. But he didn't stay in that state. He was elevated and glorified and inherited his own throne so that there's no difference in between the the Father and the Son today like there was on the earth and uh, because that gap is closed. And that's what it means when it says he sat down on the right hand of the, the limitations between the limitations between of his humanity and the, the separation between the limitations of humanity, the frailness, the part of him that could die, get hungry, get sleep, you know, had to go to sleep, needed food, fell asleep in the bottom of the boat because he was tired from preaching all day, didn't even notice there was a storm going on. Um, that that's now that's erased, that's gone. gone. It's God Almighty, Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. I just I just reach out to him and and pray to him as in the name of Jesus. I call him Jesus. Yep. And the spirit that I feel is simply that same Jesus, not in a bodily form, but in his spirit form. He has, it, it, it's all amalgamated just into the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. The human has been glorified. So if you follow and this is what I did. I was trying to follow the follow the flesh, and the flesh got glorified. The flesh became, um, in fact, there's a, and I don't know where it is, so you'll have to, those of you that are listening, you're going to have to go in your uh, uh, concordance and find the scripture. But it says the first Adam became a living being. This is New King James. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Well, that's speaking about Jesus. When did Jesus become a life-giving spirit? It wasn't in Bethlehem. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit when he ascended and then poured out his spirit. Yes. The, the, the spirit of God in the identity of Jesus Christ. He became a life-giving spirit. And so the spirit that we receive is the spirit of Jesus. Let's go to the next question here. That was fantastic. Let's go to the next question here. And Pastor Robert, I'd love to hear from you on this one as well. Um, The question is, how do I keep from getting burned out from those I'm discipling? They ask a ton of questions, are in need of a lot of care. How, though, do I establish healthy boundaries? And I, I think... What we're getting at here is, you know, discipling, it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of work. It, it, there's a lot of effort. It's not just showing up to somebody's house and teaching a lesson, but you're really becoming somebody that, you know, for lack of a, a better picture, takes them by the hand and leads them from being someone who's not converted to a place of spiritual maturity. And that's a lot of work and it requires a lot of effort. And um, sometimes we get tired. <laughs> <laughs> we get so tired. And so how do we keep from getting burned out and how do we establish healthy boundaries? I think one of the big things for us is um, that we have to have some sort of schedule of our own life, uh, which is important. 
because I'm hearing from teachers and have experienced myself that students will take all of our time and we'll give up the important things that we're supposed to do in life just to go help that individual. And though that's right to help them, we'll just be crushed under the weight of trying to help somebody. So trying to schedule to where that person's going to meet you, when you're going to teach them, when you're going to help them and share God's word with them um, is important as well as personal study and development. They're every day looking at God's word, seeking God's face these things that we know as Christians are important, we need to do those. Um, so we're developing and we're growing um, ourselves. That will help us not get burned out. Yeah. And um, making sure that we're not overscheduling ourselves, which is something I'm still working on myself. Yeah, uh, me but too. We have to reevaluate yeah. what's going on in our own life. Because as I look at all the people that are involved in teaching at LifePoint Church. We have young adults. We have married couples that have children. Uh, we have uh, uh, elders that have been in church for a long time. And so we have this broad spectrum of people that are teaching at different levels of life. And um, uh, we all have different amounts of time that we can give, but making sure that that uh, we're not stretching ourselves so much. We can't be good to the people that are in our life, like our own families Absolutely. and the people that we are close to. Absolutely. Pastor, I saw you lean into the mic there. Do you have any thoughts? Um, no, I think that's really, really good. I think it's maybe a good rule of thumb, particularly for those who are working jobs. You shouldn't really be teaching more than one Bible study at a time. Um, but I would add to it, Remember, you're dealing with babies, and you have to be prepared that you're not going to only do a, a one or one-and-a-half-hour Bible study, and then that's the only contact until next week. Um, you're dealing with a baby uh, spiritually, and so it is going to be in, an inconvenience, but um, you do set some some parameters and make sure... You don't do things that build resentment in the rest of your family, which is um, not always easy, but um, but try to keep a schedule and uh, let people know that you'll get back to them in a scheduled way. In other words, you're not available every time they just have a question, night or day, uh, that's not sustainable. And so, um, but you will be inconvenienced more than just that, time that you're teaching a Bible study uh, in the week. Yeah, I think that's, both of you made such great points, and um, I think knowing where your time goes, knowing knowing kind of what the demands on your life are, and then establishing those, those parameters, because it feels good to help people. Absolutely. It feels so good to help people, but if you don't find ways to uh, rest and recharge as well as as well as as you said, Pastor Robert, feed your own soul. You will eventually get to a place where you got nothing left to give people. And so, if you're not, if if you're so invested in others that you don't have time, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in to uh, in a bit. But if you don't have time to read the Word and pray and and just let your mind relax, you'll get to a point. You'll be like a rubber band that's been stretched 
uh, you know, too thin, which I think is the, the word that, that you used and you stretch too thin. And then eventually you'll run, you'll be running on empty and we're not designed to disciple people on empty. We're to serve from the overflow of what God is doing in our life. And so I, I think that was excellent. And, uh, you know, Pastor, you are right that when we are dealing with people, when we are making disciples, it is an investment of time. So what we do is we set the boundaries, like you said at the beginning, and then um, uh, by not being accessible twenty four seven, that gives us time to to pull back and to recharge. And, and how that looks too on the other side of that is when you begin to do that, like when Pastor was saying to um, let them know that you you'll get back to them at a certain time. Yeah. Uh, or or the next day or in a few days. Yeah. What you're doing is you're also teaching or training that person. You're not there every text, every call, um, stepping aside from everything you're doing, but you're teaching them that, you know, you're going to get them. You're going to get there at some point. Yeah. You're going to answer their question. So you don't have to run away from everything you're doing in life just to show up to help them, but you're training them along the way. You know what? They'll probably get to the place where they'll be ready for your Bible study next time and hold on to the questions. Yeah. And you're also teaching people that not everything is urgent. Not, not, yeah. you know, you know, when, when you, someone is a new Christian, everything feels, you know, every question and every challenge can feel like a crisis. But when, you know, you, you get that rapport, that relationship with them and you're like, okay, you know what? let's just take a big, deep breath. Jesus is still on his throne. God is still good. And we're going to answer this on Wednesday. And um, give me time to think of, that's a great question. I always go, that's a great question. Let me think about that and pray about it. And on our Bible study, I'm going to answer that and we're going to have a great discussion. And then usually what happens is when you get to Wednesday or whenever you're teaching, that the intensity of the emotion of that moment for that new Christian has usually dropped a little bit because they, they've gone and they've prayed about it. They've thought about it, and the anxiety gets dialed back, and it, and it, it just helps. Let, let, let me, before I ramble too much, let, let me go to um, the next question here, and either of you, I, uh, please answer this. Pastor Shaw, Pastor Robert, I want your, your feedback on this because I know you both have great experience practically on this. Tips on establishing an environment of prayer and sensitivity to the Spirit when teaching with or, or teaching students that are maybe a little more introverted or, or, or shy. It's, it's so like, you know, there are moments we all can sense when God's trying to break through in a, in a starting point group, but we're not sure how to bring people to that response. And it's not like we push it unnecessarily, but when the Spirit of God is moving, how do we help introverted people or shy people realize, oh, Jesus is here. If I just respond to him with a little bit of worship and prayer, something wonderful can happen. How do I do that? Either of you, why don't you jump in? Um, I thought about this question, and the scripture that came to mind was 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22. And it says, and on, uh, Paul is writing, he says, Unto the Jews I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them who are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ. That I may gain them that are without the law, 
Then he says in verse 22, to the weak, I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all thing, uh, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. What he was doing was, he was identifying with the people that he was teaching. So, if you're with extroverted, extroverts and you feel the presence of the Lord moving and you know, it might be okay to shout and wave your arms and do a whole bunch of things. But if you're with introver- uh, introverted people, they they may be totally blown out of the water by your extroverted um, manifestation of worship. So you have to kind of use your wisdom. and You have to identify with the, the person that is there. You need to help... Um, them by finding common ground, empathizing with them, and trying to trying to come to their level, um, help them to feel safe and comfortable if they're shy or they're introverted. Uh, build trust by appreciating their personality. Don't don't say, "Well, you need to shout like me." That all that does is make them feel less safe, and it will not probably bring them to the experience you want. You need to become shy to those who are shy, introverted to those who are introverted by the way you present. It's just a method. It's not changing any of your your content. And so um, that's what I would say if I were dealing with someone. I would try to understand where they're coming from and I would try to find the way to touch them and lead them into the presence of the Lord that is in keeping with their personality. There's something I said a long time ago. Um, the fish always determine the bait. The fish always determine the bait. If you're bass fishing and they like frogs, live use frogs. Tree, live tree frogs. Yes. Well, no green frogs. <laughs> oh, green frog. I'm yeah. sorry. Green, green frog. You say, well, I like toads or... I like this or I like that. Well, that may not work with uh, uh, catching a bass. The bass tell you what they need. If you want to catch a bass, you have to use what bass want. And the same is true when you're winning souls and you're teaching people. You have to let them give you feedback by their personality. What is going to be the best way to lead them into the presence of God? And... um and use that method. And that takes a lot of wisdom and discipline. Sometimes, you know, we want to get our blessing on when we're teaching somebody a Bible study. That's really not your time. Yeah, it's not about you. It's not about you. And so when you feel the presence of the Lord and you're with a shy person, you could very easily say, you know what? Do you feel what I feel? I feel God's presence. Sometimes you feel it emotionally. Sometimes you feel it with like goosebumps on your skin. Do you feel comfortable? And you just invite them gently. Do you feel comfortable just uh, reaching your hands out a little bit to Jesus? And, you know, very carefully and very gently as, a, as opposed to, well, I feel God, let's talk in tongues. And uh, I don't know if that would work with particularly an introverted person. And so you have to know, know your room, know your audience, know your fish that you're trying to catch. Anyway, that's my thought.
No, that was really good. Absolutely. It was that awesome. That was great. Um, I'm that way better than what I was thinking. That was so awesome. Uh, the thing I was thinking is lean on the lessons. Uh, there's opportunities that the lessons give for yeah. these opportunities. Like when you begin your lesson, start with prayer. That's going to help somebody who um, maybe is not used to praying or reaching out to God. Uh, you showing them, maybe not yelling or, or shouting out loud, but as you were saying, Pastor. And then when you're closing, close in prayer. But there's little spots throughout the lesson um, to where the light might come on in someone's mind if you're teaching them and there's some hurt or there's some pain and you can see that the emotion is willing up. You need to stop in that lesson and use that moment to pray about those issues. And also when you get to the end, there's questions. There's questions about salvation. Have you been baptized? Have you received the Holy Ghost? Have you repented of your sins? You need to lean on the lesson and take those moments in the lesson to uh, have a time of prayer and to discuss those things and, um, and, and help that person along in those moments as well. I was thinking when you talked, you said lean on the lessons, that there are certain lessons that are more conducive, that if you're really well prepared, you know when you do the nothing but the blood lesson, mm. like that, like we're all laid out. Like at the end, at the end, everyone is ugly crying or we're feeling God. And so, you know, there are other lessons that are, are a little more lifestyle oriented or they're a little more um, theological in their content. And I, I, just to add on to this, obviously we're spirit led, spirit driven. And if God is here, we want to bring people into his presence. But I think we also need to understand our role as discipleship teachers that teaching the word of God, people learning, you know, we say we want to be a church where people experience God's presence and learn God's teaching. Um, one is not at the expense of the other. And so we haven't had a bad Bible study because, or a bad starting point group because for 17 lessons, no one's fallen out onto the ground. Um, sometimes it's really good to teach the word of God to people and then they think about it all week and it just eats away at their soul so that when they come to church where it's experience driven on Sunday, they're, they're able to be spiritually moved on by God. Of course, if the Lord is, if the Lord is, um, is, is moving in a strong and a dynamic way, then obviously we like we're going to use what pastor said and we're going to bring people in but i don't think we need to feel a need to force it and make something happen if it's not there it's okay just to teach the word of god and allow the word of god to change people's hearts over time um here's a question that deals with the heartbreak of when it doesn't work out and how do I keep from getting disappointed when someone drops out of our lessons or decides not to commit or worse backslides after completing starting point? I put a lot of time, like months even, like months. I, I've, you know, there's there's the there's all of the sacrifice. Uh not not that they're not willing to to make it, but it can be discouraging. So how do I how do, I, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with the discouragement? Well, you're going you're gonna to be affected. Yeah. Um, teaching people and winning souls is emotionally draining and challenging, and you become, 
you, you invest and you sacrifice and you give up a piece of your life in order to help people be saved. You need to, you need to know going into this that there's a great percentage of people that you teach that at some point in their life they're going to give this up. Look, look at Jesus. He, he had thousands of people, and one day he was left with the 12, and he looks at them and said, hey, guys, uh, you guys checking out too? <laughs> you leave it do too. I, do I need to go back down to the shore and start calling some more fishermen? Uh, so it's going to happen. Settle in your mind. But you need to be, can you imagine the doctor? Okay, he's, he's an emergency room doctor, and he sees the same people all the time, and he knows this person's got to, you know, lose weight, and this person's got to quit smoking, and, and this person needs to help their diet a little bit more because they're diabetic, and, and they keep ending up in the emergency ward, and some of them die. Can you imagine the doctor saying, I don't want to be a doctor anymore because the people don't want to do what I tell them, they, and then they die. Well, we're glad that the doctors don't. I guess the difference is the doctors still get a big paycheck at the end. <laughs> <laughs> they get a yeah. big paycheck at the end of it. But um, you have to understand that you are helping some. And when we were, we were discussing this question earlier, Adam and I, um, I talked uh, about the story that I heard about the man that went down to the seashore um, and saw a man there throwing starfish that had washed up onto the sand, taking them and throwing them back out into the sea. There were hundreds and hundreds of starfish scattered all over. Most of them were going to die. And this man was throwing them back, and, and the guy came along, and he said, why are you doing this? You're, you're really not making a difference. Does, does it really matter what you're doing? You're, you're not making a difference. And the man didn't say anything. He just reached down and picked up another starfish and he threw it out to the sea. And then he turned to the man and said, well, it made a difference to this one. Yeah. And the thing that keeps me going as a Bible study teacher is that I'm going to make a difference in somebody. Yes. I may not make a difference in everyone. Not everyone is going to continue. But I am going to make a difference. And if you do this enough and you do it with enough people, there are going to be literally piles of people in heaven yes. because you said, I'm not going to allow those who rejected the word. And by the way, they're not rejecting you. you got to stop taking this personally. Right? They're rejecting Jesus. Yeah. They're rejecting his word. I mean, he's the one that ought to be heartbroken. But... He continues on because he knows he's going to have a church. And you need to know that too. You need to know that Jesus is going to have a church and you're going to be a part of people making it to heaven because you continued. That's what you need to do. Yeah. Late teens, early 20s, I banged on a lot of doors trying to get Bible studies. Um, thank the Thank the Lord we're having to move a God at life point. There's lots of people coming in and lots of Bible studies to teach. But I remember being rejected over and over and over again. But as you were saying, Pastor, it's that one that you teach that gets filled with the Holy Ghost, gets baptized in Jesus' name. They change their life. That sets you on fire so much. You'll just go 
you'll go back. The, you'll get rejected over and over again, but yeah. that one will keep you going um, until until the next one. And you're not responsible for what feels like a failure. I think that's really important. And that is, you know, you're you're the pair. I was reading in, in my Bible reading today in Mark, and it was the parable of the sower, and uh, and we don't see this the sower stressing out over the state of the soil. He just throws the seed out. And the response or the fruit that is born is only dependent upon two things, the effectiveness of the seed and the state of the soil. Well, the seed is the word of God, Jesus says. And so the the this the seed is powerful and it's effective and it it creates change. You have nothing to do with that. Jesus' word has everything to do with that. But the thing that determines whether or not that word of God is effective is the soil of the heart. And some of the sometimes people are shallow. Sometimes people are their heart is hardened. Sometimes people get, you know, distracted by the cares of this life, Jesus says. But that's none of those things are your fault. And so you worry about your own heart. You, you worry about the state of the soil of your own soul and you let and you let God and people determine who they're going to be with the effort and the sacrifice that you've made. This is our last question. And I hope you've all have enjoyed this. We've gone through a lot of content coming up now on 53 minutes plus however long it takes us to answer this last question. This last question is... Um, how do you keep from growing? What are some resources that that I can I can bring into my life to 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 grow as a teacher? What are some best practices of a successful discipleship teacher? So there is kind of a two part question here. So how do I keep growing? But also from the experience of the both of you gentlemen here that have taught dozens and dozens and dozens of Bible studies and starting point groups as small as one or as I think at one point, you know, you guys were teaching groups that were as big as like 14 or 15 people, something wild like that. 25. 25. 25 when I first came to LifePoint. 25. 25. So like the size of a church plant. So you've gone from one kitchen table to the size of a church plant. Uh, What are some best practices of a successful discipleship teacher? You guys, whatever part of this you want to tackle, just go ahead. Go ahead, Pastor Robert. So what comes to my mind is first be... First, be a student disciple, I guess, is what. Yeah. I don't know if that's a thing. I'm just thinking about it. But um, disciples make disciples, but you have to continue to be the student. Yeah. And I think what makes a great disciple is somebody who is willing to learn from somebody else. So many times we have all seen it where somebody says, I want to teach, I want to teach, I want to teach, and they go and teach, and, of course, it doesn't actually go that well usually. Yeah. You know, I've I've been there. But when like at life point we take people and connect them to a teacher and they assist that teacher, they're growing, they're learning the material, they're a student with that teacher. And over time, they're going to be the disciple that's leading this teaching and hopefully someone will sit with them one day. But we have to continue to be the student that's willing to learn 
And along with that, I would say, um, uh, prepare. Yeah. Prepare every lesson. Don't go in, you know, um, willy nilly. Don't go in just, you know, you've taught this a couple of times before, you know, the lesson you need to pray. You need to look at that lesson at some point down years down the road, you may feel real comfortable and you can just walk in and teach the lesson. But, um, I would say a person that spends time looking over the lesson, seeing where they can share their own personal lives, um, and how, how that lesson may look in the life of the person that they're teaching, um, um, is certainly going to help. So go in, be prepared and continue to be, um, a student as we never stop as disciples. Yeah, we never We're do. always continue to grow. Always do. Pastor. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, continue to, to grow is, is the best way to stay, um, stay prepared and to grow in your ability to teach. There's another scripture that comes to mind and, uh, that may be a good best practice when it comes to being a discipleship teacher. And that is, um, the scripture comes to mind that says, sow the seed beside all waters or something to that effect. Do not try to second guess whether this person is a waste of time or whether the word of God is going to be effective. Let me tell you, I've taught people that I, th- I thought, wow, <laughs> they are a big fish. In fact, in my mind, I thought, this, I'm so excited about teaching this person. This person is going to change Life Point Church. And they never panned out. They, they, they were just a flash in the pan. They flaked out. They flaked out. And then somebody else that is, they'd be bypassed by the world. And they get saved and they become this, this tremendous instrument in God's kingdom. Um to do all different kinds of ministry or they become faithful, they become they become dependable and they stick with it. And so sow the seed beside all waters. Be willing to teach anyone that is available to be taught. Now obviously if they start, as somebody said, flaking out, um, you know, cancel every week and and you can't nail them down, you just simply say, you know what, maybe this isn't a good time for you. Maybe you let us know when you're more available. We'd be glad to start back up and set that on the side burner. I'm not talking about, um, you know, you you need to manage your time in situations like that, but I'm talking about where you judge the person and you evaluate them. Oh, yeah, they're, they're awesome. Or they're a waste of time. If they're willing to sit down and learn the Word of God, they're a soul that Jesus wants to save. Yes. And you do not know what God is going to do with their life and how he's going to impact them and the people that are connected with them that you're going to teach because you invested the time and energy in that person. And so I just say follow it. Just follow it until it doesn't look like it's going to pan out to be anything. And... uh uh, that's been my method, and I believe um, that that will put people uh, in the kingdom of God, and God will be glorified when you're willing to take time with people maybe others would bypass. Anyway, just a thought. 
I would also say, it in keeping with what you have both said, and that is no apostolic doctrine in and out. You know, there's a lot. One of the things that makes Starting Point so amazing is that we are teaching a lot of apostolic theology. And it's so important that when you go in to teach, that your knowledge of doctrine is deeper than the lesson. The lesson is designed to instruct a new Christian. But if you as a teacher have only read and studied the lesson, and there has been no other point or time in your life where you have not gone deeper in doctrine, you're you're not going, you're if they ask a tough question, <laughs> you're gonna have difficulty answering that. When I was in Bible college, one of the 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 most memorable statements I heard when I was there is you better have more. You better have more under the counter than what's on display. The, the guy was basically telling me, hey, look, you know, it's so important that if you're going to be an effective uh, minister for Jesus, if you're going to make disciples, what whatever you're displaying or teaching to the world, you, you better have a lot more if you're a retail store. You better have more in the back room, in the stock room, than what you've got on the shelf because... If people come and and they need more than what you've got on display, you'll have nothing to give them. So I would say in addition to to what all of you said, the advice, which has been fantastic, is if you've never read The Oneness of God or The New Birth by by Dr. David Bernard, read them. Um, If that seems a little daunting, start with Big Ideas by David Norris, which is a fantastic book that, that I recommend everybody from older teens and up and up read. Just get a handle. Uh, watch YouTube videos. Um, uh, ask Pastor Robert and Pastor Shaw questions on what they're studying, or if they've they've got any material that you can read, so that you are able to uh, you're able to answer whatever questions come. And uh, well, that's pretty much it. Unless you guys have anything else that you want to add, um, or anything that you'd like to say to our teachers, yeah, Pastor Shaw, Pastor Robert, the. There's no question for this, but one thing that I would add is these lessons were written so that you could teach some more advanced people. There may be some times when you're teaching someone where you might say, well, you know, this is this is a long Bible study. This is complicated. This is, you may have to paraphrase. You're teaching the content, but um, you're condensing or simplifying um, it in such a way that it is applicable to them. And so um, we've tried to provide as much material as possible, but also allow you to uh, dial it back a tiny bit if you're dealing with someone who may be overwhelmed by the information or maybe you just need to break up a lesson and do part of it and finish it the next time. But... um Make that judgment when you're teaching people so that, you know, they're actually catching what you're saying. If they're not catching what you're saying, figure out a way to put, in your own, to put it in your own words so that they understand the meaning of uh, the words and the lesson so that they get it. Anyway, that's the only thing I would add. Pastor Robert? I would just say to the discipleship teachers, I know this is not a question or anything said, but... yeah. I've been looking at the word of the Lord more and more and seeking God's face about how revival looks in the book of Acts. And and then I'm viewing LifePoint Church. 
And I'm seeing more and more that the power of God's moving in the church services on Sunday, yeah. on a Tuesday night. But I would say to the teachers, do not discount what you're doing during the week when you're teaching a Bible study. The results you see on Sunday and on Tuesday, whether it be in a youth service or Tuesday night, what you are doing during the week is bringing the results on the weekend. Yes. What you're doing, uh, and also when you read the word of the Lord, you will see it wasn't just some big service where God was healing somebody or someone was getting the Holy Ghost. It's actually when they were in their homes, when they were getting together, when somebody was teaching them the word. So I believe and I expect uh, that the Lord is going to use the discipleship teachers so people will receive the Holy Ghost. Absolutely. There will be healings that will take place outside of Sunday church services, but it's going to take place when you are teaching the Word of the Lord and when you create opportunities to seek God in those Bible studies, to pray, to worship, uh, and help that student along, that God will see your confidence in Him and He will pour out His Spirit and do the miraculous right where you are teaching the Word. That's all the time we have for today, and I'd like to say thank you so much to Pastor Shaw and Pastor Robert for taking time out of your busy schedule to answer our questions and give us some incredible training. Most of all, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for listening and growing yourself, and I want to thank you for your continued investment into making disciples of Jesus Christ helping people learn God's teaching and learn the word of the Lord is so important for their faith and their sustainable uh, experience and walk with God. So thank you so very much for serving. We are praying for you. We appreciate you and what you are doing is making a big difference. So God bless until we do this again. We'll see you later.